COVID started. Uh, but uh, we've got all, all three modalities represented here. And we can, when we're done, we can come back and look at parts and stuff. Uh, we've got laser machines here. A lot of these are used to train like service staff and stuff. So a lot of them are in varied states of uptime and whatever. But we also do use them for printing. Uh, and we have DPN and things like that. These doors here, are sort of because when we opened the facility in 2020, right, we're part way into our sort of beta journey. Mm -hmm. We actually developed built into the facility customer cells, so these are actually badge access, they have their own hallway. So these are like sort of customer hotel rooms with oh, right, okay. beta machines in them, so they've got their own secured space where they can come in and print parts and so forth. Right. And then they've got close access to our engineers as well. Hello, and welcome to Additive Insight. Your source of news, interviews, and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence. Brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and on today's episode, we go through the doors of G Additive Cincinnati, Ohio facility to take a deep dive into the company's Series 3 metal binder jet platform. G Additive unveiled the Series 3 system late last year, with a view to commencing shipments in the second half of 2023. It comes after a six-year R&D journey that has also lent on a series of beta users, with GE targeting the mass production of parts with minimal touch time in industries such as automotive, energy and defence. On this episode of Additive Insight, we sit down with Brian Berkmeyer, the product line leader for Binergy at GE Additive, and Chris Shupi, the company's GM of Engineering and Technology to discuss the capabilities of the system, what they have learned from their beta users, and what the demand has been like since last year's announcement. We also have a quick walk around the machine on the factory floor. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. We pick things up with Brian explaining why GE Additive felt there was a need for this kind of product on manufacturing shop floors. The biggest thing that I often hear, especially as we have new people reaching out to us, if they're but even if they're current users in Binerjet, is a need for scale. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, technology that can actually move them from something that has a lot of user touch time um, and may not have the most applicability for you know scaled production into say like millions of parts as an example if you mm-hmm. look at people who do a lot of press and center work or whatever it might be um, and so I think for our technology we have a I think we've got a good use case in that space where um, you know our, our technology was designed to be able to support scaled production that was always the goal mm-hmm. um, so I think that's a, a key differentiating piece of where we potentially sit, or at least what our, our initiative has been from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And you, you were talking about touch time um, back at Formnext. So what's the, how much touch time would you consider a problem in the, in the kind of industries you're serving? And how do, you, how do you kind of tangibly measure that when you're bringing a new solution to say, this will reduce that touch time by X amount? How does that all, all work? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, our, our 
our vision is that you could have multiple Series 3 machines connected to the ancillary equipment. So there's economies of scale there. I think we kind of talked about that at Formex. Mm -hmm. um, and then a lot of the powder transfer and all that kind of stuff, where you have binder and cleaner going from the liquid MHS to the machine, um, where you have powder going to and fro, depowder station, powder MHS, Series 3, all of that stuff's closed loop and automated to the extent that the user either manually calls for it or the machine itself can automatically call for. Mm -hmm. I need I need more powder to run a build or I need more binder and cleaner. Um, and so all that stuff, if you look at even our prior Series 2 platform, all that is manual. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you load binder and cleaner in, you pour it in the containers on the machine, you manually pour in powder. So we've done our best to remove all that from the process such that all the user or technician running a fleet of machines has to do really is make sure that my raw material barrels that are you know full enough such that I can support the process and then it's really just monitoring the build, removing build boxes and moving them to the next step. So you could have a, in a factory floor layout, you can have boxes sort of queued, the machine can run a build, um, kick, them, kick that build out onto the conveyor system that we have on the front or onto an AGV or an AMR or something like that and it'll automatically then introduce the next build box and get to work. Mm -hmm. So in that scenario you don't have to have a user there necessarily you know, manually taking out build box, manually putting in new build box, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's interesting Sam if you go back probably, I don't know what year, it was probably 2018 time frame you know, when we really started heavily talking to automotive customers and when you talk about the current, you know, at the time that we were just releasing the H2, but think about most laser printers on the market, most EVM printers on the market. Mm -hmm. When you talk to automotive folks, they laugh at the touch time, right? <clears throat> They're like, there's no way this will ever be a production technology in automotive. It's just not, not, yeah. not realistic. This system, as Brian described, really kind of tries to address a lot of those concerns that were raised from those automotive companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with the automotive industry or not, but right in, in aerospace, we, we measure lead times in days, right? <laughs> in automotive, they measure in seconds, right? Or even tenths of seconds. So it's, okay. it's a completely different conversation with those customers. Um, you know, I, I, I used to work at Toyota, self-proclaim, self, uh, <laughs> uh, or self-confess, you know, and I think I actually brought the team down to Toyota's plant down in Georgetown last spring, I think it was. And, you know, they're running every 55 seconds, the car's coming out. So you think about that pace and you think, can I have somebody manually handling mm -hmm. powder, liquids, you know, build boxes, et cetera, for parts that are going to go into that industry? It'll never happen. Right. right, so we have to get to a point where we're talking in seconds or worst case minutes of touch time here. Um, so that's really kind of been the vision of the team. And mm. I think as Brian described, we've focused really on the printing process and maybe less on the downstream because certain customers have said, don't worry about the downstream, I know how to automate that, but automate the printing part of the process. Okay, so. I was gonna ask about that because <clears throat> when you think of a machine launch, I think, you can be forgiven for just thinking it's this box that you just pick up, pick it up and put it there. Yeah. But when you see that, there's a whole workflow going on. It's a end-to-end -end solution. So how how much of a challenge is it kind of implementing that at a, say an automotive company or an aerospace company, and that's quite a a lot of things to implement in their 
production lines and our assembly lines. So how, how much of a challenge is that to actually get it out there on the market? I, I think the, the nice thing, like, like I mentioned, is from a factory perspective, right? You'll, the printers are sort of the things that will really scale here. These peripherals of the MHSs, like the liquid and the powder, are somewhat, you know, you buy one and then it scales, as Brian's showing here, right? You, you could have one MHS running, you know, kind of eight printers, one, sorry, powder MHS running eight to ten printers. You know, what this is sort of showing is a factory implementation, and this is actually patterned after one of our customers. So they're thinking about this in sort of this modular basis of these if you've ever been to any automotive um, component supplier type of factories, they have these cells, right, that they set mm -hmm. up, and that, that cell is dedicated to the manufacture of specific parts in that material. Same idea here. So um, we've really, to be frank, leveraged a lot of their expertise as we've thought about this factory implementation. So it's a lot of what you see here is based on the feedback directly from our mm -hmm. partner customers. Yeah. The other thing I want to just add is uh, we've tried to design the hardware to be flexible to be configured how you you opt right. So the the machines can be one of our customers is looking at you know forty five degree angles because it's going to flow Make better. Yeah. <laughs> um, that it's our sales guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why we don't invite him. <laughs> he's not on paternity leave, so he's all fired up. <laughs> um, but it, anyway, so the. You know they're, they're planning to orient more at like 45 degree angles and instead of conveyance systems like we show here uh, illustratively they want to move build boxes around with sort of agvs and amrs which is totally fine the more customers we talked about especially like in the automotive space use, use toyota as an example they have their own preferences on a lot of those other sort of down how i want to move things around or how i would want to set up various processes and scale so the what we what I show here is, you know, where you see dotted lines of barrels moving or bill boxes moving, that's, we've tried to design it to be flexible, mm -hmm. such that people can implement it in their factory floor as they see fit. The sort of solid arrows are things that in their current operating environment, they probably don't want to deal with. So we've, we've gone ahead and automated those pieces because that's core to the printing process, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So on that other image where you have a kind of render of a factory, <clears throat> would an aerospace facility and their and their adoption of the technology look like that? How how what would be the differences between an, an aero company and an automotive company and how they deploy the technology and, and work it into their facilities? It probably depends on the application, to be honest. Um, you know, if if you had a high volume, so if you think about, you know, GE as an example, our highest volume engine is the CFM platform or what's called Leap now rough round numbers, you know, you're producing two to 3,000 engines per year. So volume-wise, if you're just creating one component per engine, it's not that interesting. But there are components on the engine that you may have 10, 20, 50, 100 of, that suddenly, if you say, well, I got 100 per engine, 2,000 engines a year, you start to get into interesting volumes that are similar to automotive scale, right? Mm -hmm. So it depends on the application is the short answer. Yeah. Um, but basically, you could have this kind of the view that Brian showed on the prior chart, um, you know, just as a single cell, right? One one printer, one handling station, et cetera, and that may be enough for for a particular application in aerospace. If you get to a CFM mm -hmm. 
high volume application, you may need something more like this. But generally speaking, the process is scalable, yeah. um, regardless of the volume. What you probably would find in aerospace is they would end up with material families of parts, where they would, you know, this would be like, a, as an example, 718 is a very common aerospace mm -hmm. alloy, right? 718 model line that's printing 10, 20, 30 different parts in the same builds right. to maximize the efficiency and the cost. You mentioned Toyota as an example. You've been talking to automotive companies, and then you also have the, the beta users. So can you tell me about the, I guess, an update on the, on the beta users and how, and how the process has helped them, but also what's the, I guess, the difference in the relationship between a beta user and just a, you know, a company that you have relationships with, like a Toyota, um, who I guess aren't classed as a beta user. Right, yeah, and, and to be clear, Toyota is a personal connection of mine, sure, so yeah, yeah. not necessarily a GE connection per se. Um, you know, our beta customers are working, we're, we're collaborating really both on the machine design as well as the development of their applications mm -hmm. and the materials. So typically our beta customers are participating in the development of the material properties. And as a beta user, they get access to the other beta users' materials data. Mm. Um, so we're trying to create sort of a materials catalog that then, you know, if you're a beta user, you also get access to that same data. Mm -hmm. um, the, the beta users obviously are also, are, you know, Cummins is one of our publicly stated beta users, right? They're they're certainly one of our key customers as we launch the Series mm -hmm. 3, so they're sort of on the, the yeah. leading edge of that that introduction to production. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I the flip would be for someone who isn't today, um, you know, we have, so there's different enterprises across the world are going to have different levels of appetite of risk or investment tolerance, and so we certainly see some folks out there today that are, hey, you know, once you've got data off of multiple Series 3 machines in production, then come talk to me so I can, you know, I'm not going to seriously entertain up until you have that, as an example. Others are saying, hey, look, let's, let's get a, lead, a head start, um, to Chris's point, get applications developed, materials developed, center cycles developed, such that when the Series 3s are ready to go, then we can launch into production on a more you know, mm -hmm. expedited time frame. Right. And some, uh, some of our beta customers are very like Cummins has been willing to be public, right? Some of them are very private about mm. what, you know, they don't want to, they don't want their name out there yet because they may be working on something that they feel is disruptive to the industry that they don't want to broadcast yet until they're ready to be out. Right? Okay. So they're more than the four beta users that are publicly announced. Yeah. Okay. And we, we have, uh, you know, certain beta customers today that say, uh, I don't even. I don't even want that machine. Can you just sell me more of the beta machines, because they're finding good success off of them. So okay. we probably won't do that in the short term. But um, you know, so certain people, depending on the processes that they've already developed, say, "Hey, I don't want to. I don't want to rock the boat." So we're working through that, and we're developing. We're going through the process right now of developing sort of what that transfer function is from the beta asset to the series three. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because I guess the, the issue there would be repeatability, right? They've got, it works, so why, even if it's a tiny risk, yeah. why, why move away from that when, when what they've got works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the, the core of the machine 
the, you know, the physics of the process, the print heads, the how we do it, um, generally speaking, is the same between the two platforms because mm -hmm. we want to try to make it as transferable as possible. The whole premise with the Series 2 beta platform was to learn and inform what the more production-oriented machine wants to be. So small small tweaks to process, right? The, our recode assembly is different, but more, you know, same general process, but more robust. Our cleaning stations for printheads, SimDeal, same general process, but more robust. So there are slight tweaks, which is why I mentioned that transfer function from that machine to the other. I can't develop a, a parameter on the Series 2 beta and direct copy paste to the Series 3. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make sure we can validate, hey, my, you know, my, uh, you know, my traverse speeds, how does that all translate to properties and all that. I may real quick so we we are our engineering team scheduled by like blocks of hours per day um, <laughs> so our window is 9 30 to a certain point of time then going to software testing stuff this afternoon so if we could pause we yeah, can look at the machine running sure. um, and then let them continue to do their thing we can come back here we've got parts on the floor and stuff but yeah we'll, we'll be lined to the machine so you can see it running we'll go from yeah. there. that works for you So we're running here now. Obviously, you got HMI system here. Each machine has its own on-machine on containment binder and cleaner within this door here. But the MHS liquid on the back side, we'll walk around in a second, uh, feeds direct through a bulkhead in the back of the machine. This conveyor system, you can kind of see through this window, it's mirrored on the back side. So from a factory flow perspective, if you prefer to have boxes going both in the front and out the front, or queued up in the back, print, come out the front, however you want to do it, you can do. Um, if you look at the system overall, so powder is fed in from the hopper up top into a system here. You can kind of see this wedge-shaped system here. Um, and what happens is we basically we leverage similar IP from our EVM machines. It's not the same architecture, but it's similar. So we feed in from a hopper on top to an on-machine containment. Then you have, if you step over here with me, um, so you've got, uh, You'll, you'll note there is, so you can see there's a little arm that comes down this way and kind of, it's got a helical motion to it. And basically what I do is I dose powder up. There's a sort of containment system here. I dose powder up and after a certain number of layers, that arm will retract, refills from this hopper and everything is just all automated and flows from the hopper up top. Okay. Um, if we go to this side over here, Right now we're doing parameter development testing, trying to see how fast we can go. Um, but over here you've got uh, active printhead maintenance on every single layer, so you've got varied, varied steps of sort of a cleaning station to try to you know, keep printhead uptime high, uh, printhead life high, etc. Um, all the way through, and then as you look here, you can see this sort of trough on the back side. If you, you can step closer if you want. So, as a recoat, so now I'm coming across and I'm jetting. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then I'm as it comes back, see that how that cantilever down right here on this side? Yeah. Does so it recoat across? I'm recoating excess in there, it cantilevers up, so I get bi-directional recoat and doing that. So it just helps with green density uniformity and things like that. Um, I think we're running right now it's about 13 second layers. So, okay. Um, you, you could do the math and probably figure out what the uh, <laughs> CCs per hour is. About 6,800 CCs per yeah, hour. Yeah, right. 7,000 CCs 
per hour, so it's okay. moving pretty, uh, pretty quick here. So when you're developing parameters, um, you mentioned speed. What are the other things that you're you're looking for in terms of parameters, and how do you know? How do you come to a conclusion and go that parameter is, is good? We can go at that speed for finished material or whatever. Yeah. So we we basically have, have ramped speed. So you've got multiple factors that go into that. Um, obviously, there's there's some proprietary bits in the recode system that you can adjust the variables at which they move, um, and then you've got the typical things you think about in, in binder jetting in terms of you know, your drop weights from your print heads, all that kind of stuff, all the way through to, in this case, intensity of your IR lamps by layer, but also, I mean, as you're printing at increasing speed, you're potentially changing the, that, the pack density uniformity of the powder you've recoded, but then also, if you print and then recode too quickly, that, that binder may not cure the right enough, such that you may have kind of um, a shade or smearing almost. Smearing almost. Mm -hmm. And then also you need to make sure that you have enough time for the, the binder to actually wick around the particles. So we test different parameters at layer speed, yes, but there's also variables within yeah. that. And then we go through and we test the green bodies to see, okay, am I getting good properties across the entirety of the build box? Things like that. So to develop a parameter, do you... <laughs> I assume you test the green part, but then do you also go through post-processing steps and then, and then do the full kind of test? Right. Yeah. yeah, not for not for everything. So you know, if we have we do a build and it yields poor results, a lot of them we won't bother, right? Sure. Because yeah. so we talk about transfer function from the beta machines to this, right? If you end up with a part that has the same green density and the same green strength, then the downstream process is the same. It's the same center cycle. It's the same material, same binder, right? So. Yeah. Um, the closer we can get to that kind of uniformity, the better off we are. Um, so it just depends on yeah. what you what you achieve through the print process to then go validate and center. Yeah, you're seeing a parameter build here, like Brian described. We're also printing, not, not in this build, but in other builds, we're printing customer parts where we're actually printing their parts and going through that post center to kind of show the full yeah. system as well. Um, when you're developing parameters, how much goes back to like the R&D team to go, can you look into this or do you just go, that doesn't work, let's forget about it. How much do you take from it and go, well really we want to print at this speed, yeah. so can you guys figure it out? Does yeah, that so like a lot of last year we were printing a lot slower than this, just trying to validate, make sure everything works. And then once we felt comfortable, now we're trying to ramp the machine to sort of known limits or at least the known limits of what the physics can support. Right. Um, we can run faster than this. The machine's yeah. capable of running basically such that each piece is chasing itself, but you may end up with bad parts. Yeah. Right? So you need to make sure that you can get the type of dimensional control and material properties that people actually care about post-center. Right? Yeah. So the, the R&D team is literally around this all day, every day. Yeah. Right, okay. So the feedback loop is very short. Right. Yeah, you can see all their desks are pushed back oh, right now. Right, their yeah. desks are normally like right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. So they're out here all the time, and they're also trying to just push it. And you know, like I said, uh, we're almost trying to break the machine where everything. So a lot of the testing and stuff we're doing is just trying to push certain subsystems out of their bounds, make sure the sensors trigger the way they should, and all that. Mm. And will this kind of work continue beyond like shipments commencing? Like, are you do are you doing this kind of work on the on the concept machines and the Arcam machines, or is it just because this is a new product? So this is following a similar process. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Ryan. 
similar process that we would follow. And so our M-Line product that came out roughly a year ago, um, you know, same, same thing. We had, I think, four machines there that we were continually testing for over a year. We ran over, I think it was 9 million different test points, which seems oh, okay. kind of crazy, but yeah. before we went to market. And part of, part of our effort is, let's be honest, in the past, some of our machines didn't have the best reputation. So really trying to come to market with mature machines that we've, we've done as much as we can to ring out and that our users aren't catching a lot of problems. Um, from an ongoing validation perspective, right, we're capturing tons of data off these machines. I don't, do you remember, Brian, per, per minute, how many data points are getting? Uh, it's in a presentation Sammy just built. It's yeah. like, it's north of 7,000 per second. Yeah, it's like 7,000 pieces of data per second, and I don't, can't see it now because their computers are moved, but they're continuously looking at that data. The beauty is we're building kind of a, what, what you would call almost like a, foot, a footprint or a fingerprint of a good, what is a good machine, right? Mm -hmm. And then as we build subsequent machines, we're going to be comparing that data back to that good machine and making sure we're not seeing drugs over time. So we won't do the, the same amount of testing, but we'll do more standardized testing. But we'll be able to look at that database that we build on these three machines and say, okay, does that, this new machine equal to or better than the other one? Right. It's kind of very similar to what we do in the aviation world right. uh, on jet engines. Mm -hmm. When you first develop a jet engine, you test the crap out of it, or the uh, really technical term there. <laughs> um, but then as you ship subsequent engines, you're really doing sort of a, what they call a green run test, or what we would call an FAT, to basically show, okay, based on these key parameters, the, the, the engine's as good as or equal to my, my tested database. But a, a couple other call-outs. So the you know the machines we've tried to design it for serviceability and things best we can. So like the printhead assembly, whilst it looks complicated, there's a lot of quick disconnects there. So you can, in theory, from a service perspective, have a spare. If you think scaled production, right? Mm -hmm. You can have a spare assembly that you can quick disconnect and replace within hours, not you know downtime of days. Um, like electrical, this whole cabin on the side of the machine is uh, low voltage, high voltage is over there, so it's got different security checks. Anything you see on machine, everything's kind of closed up right now, but anything with yellow, if you look in an electrical cabinet or anything inside, it's a safety critical component. Um, all these types of things that you think about service and maintenance in the field and stuff, we've tried to really put cognizant thought in. Uh, trying to think what else to call out from this angle. Yeah, I mean, if you look in, oh, the other thing I was going to note, so on the upper left of the machine here, we have. We've got our own environmental system on machine, which is keeping temperature and humidity constant in the working envelope. You don't see powder getting thrown up or anything like that, right? So we've designed with very cognitive, cognitive intent to make sure that we don't have a lot of crazy stuff happening inside the build chamber. Um, you know, you see the machines right here, open floor, we transfer powder from here to here. We don't have, we're not we're making footprints on the floor. There's no powder flying around in the facility. Yeah. Um, and, and unless unless you're really really in the machine, there's like for a service item or for from setting up a test, there's no need for pappers or anything. So, so you can see here Sam, the, the solid lines that Ryan was talking about earlier. So the, the material handling station, which doesn't have the skin on it here, which look kind of look like this, the, the material handling station is outer. Sorry, no. Um, you can see there those barrels are basically the raw material, the powder coming in directly to the facility in those barrels. Okay. Basically take off a small cap on top of that and put in a hose and that material is directly sucked into the machine. 
sieve and then delivered to the machine on demand as the machine needs more material. Okay. Similar here, this bulkhead that you see kind of behind on the machine is interfacing with this liquid handling station. Sorry, you put them right next to the machine. This one's on a weighted scale, so as waste starts to fill, and this is mostly just, the cleaner's a fairly simple solution with non-has, um, but what basically what happens is the, the machine can sense once the cleaners pick up enough binder from the printhead cleaning to, to be ineffective, it'll then purge what it's using, call for more automatically and refill. So what this then is, is this weighted scale signal to the user as you're getting full that hey, you need to go bring in a new waste barrel. But again, all that stuff's automated and doesn't have to, I mean, this isn't an every shift operation by any stretch. This is a once, I don't know how often. So, similar to what, what you saw in sort of that, uh, what do you call it, a rendering of the factory implementation, you know, obviously here, for space reasons and just trying to keep it together, we've shown this, or we're doing this, uh, you know, very, kind of in a tight environment here. But hypothetically, you know, this could be sitting, you know, in a room over there where I'm just gonna have binder and cleaner. And I'm going to have overhead lines that are delivering it to and from. Same thing on the powder side, right? We have a powder storage room that's back in the back corner. That unit could sit back in that back corner and we could pump the powder to the machine here. So in a factory implementation, you may have a different view of how you ultimately would do this. We're doing it very locally here on purpose just to be able to bring it out quickly. So those, um, the metal canisters there that pump the material in, and it's yep. a continuous, when this machine needs it, it pulls material from there. Yep. How quick is the changeover when those run low and, and you have to quickly grab another another material supply? So to, to install a new barrel, you're asking? Yeah, yeah. So to re basically, same same idea here. You're, you're delivering the powder to the machine. You're... You know, you're consuming that powder continuously and recycling it through the sieve in the machine. And there's also inside the machine, you can actually see this, this plastic piece is a replica of it, but inside the machine we actually have a, a cyclonic separator that's trying to basically cyclone out any of the waste uh, and improve our efficiency of reusing the powder. When ultimately you're going to end up with some powder that's maybe partially solidified, that gets sieved out and put into a strap barrel there. Mm -hmm. To change out the barrel then, so eventually similar to this, that, that scale will say, hey, I've got too much strap here, I need to yeah. need to take that out, or I need new powder to put in. To change over a barrel, I don't know exact timing, but it's probably less than five minutes to be able to flip that over. And the nice thing is the machine can continue to run because right. it's got powder in the system already. Sure. That's what I was so, going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the machine basically, in advance of a bit, it'll build, it'll signal to the MHS that it needs powder. The MHS will then, it's through a dilute phase conveyance. Basically, you've got basically two big blowers on the bottom, bottom right of the MHS powder that'll create effectively the air or gas flow to send the powder. A couple other call-outs, so the, the whole MHS powder system was co-developed with APNC, our sister company, so a lot of the sieving, blending technologies, etc., are all copies or at least leveraging a lot of the IP that they already have, which was super helpful for us in developing that equipment. If you look closely, you can still see some APNC logos on it. Um, and simple things like uh, the screen that you use to sieve is uh, quick replace. Uh, you know, it's, it's really simple, but they've designed that into the systems that they have because they need it for as they are atomizing powder. So. Uh, we got good economies of scale out of that as well. Uh, like if you can see, the, it's the same tunnel system coming off the back of the machine. Fairly straightforward. 
here you can see the like the on-machine containment, right? So relatively small containers. We don't print with a, a ton of binder as we go. It's only like uh, 2% by volume, give or take. So we're not we're not consuming egregious amounts of either of these as we print. So the machine can call for what it needs. You run a sprint, and similar there, your only gating item is the number of machines you choose to interface this piece of equipment with. All right, I got to feed a machine, then I got to feed the next machine, feed the next machine. Um, as Chris mentioned today, the depowder process is still a fairly manual process. The, that piece of equipment, though, given that it is sort of manual today, uh, we did our best to allow multiple users to get onto it. So if you look at it, there's I have two armholes, two armholes, two armholes, two armholes. So we got you could have four users simultaneous. Uh, a lot of common architecture, right? The tunnel and conveyor system is the same. Uh, the, the window that you see through, a lot of deep power stations you see have this little tiny glove box window and yeah, yeah. cruddy ergonomics, so we've done our best to improve that. Uh, but then, you know, if you have an automotive customer who's going to scale into millions of, of the same parts or hundreds of thousands of the same part, as Chris mentioned, if you go to Toyota, they've got a lot of different individual processes where, hey, I'm going to repeat this thing thousands of times a day so you could more easily automate. I know this is my build layout. I know this is where stuff's at. I can have an arm come and pick and replace whatever. Um, it's a challenging thing to truly automate for all people on a road because if I'm printing a fine lattice structure versus a big casting, it's just a, it's a different deep pattern. The, the G bandage technology was, I think it was announced like end of 2017, maybe. Was it? Yeah. It was announced like it seemed to be like within two months of you deciding you were going to do it, it was already out there that you would work, you were working on it. It was really yeah. um, early. So, but one thing I was thinking about recently was that when, when, they, when the company launched into a, an additive OEM with the G additive business, mm -hmm. they went and acquired Concept Laser and they went and acquired Arcam. But interestingly, with Bandajet, the company's developed it itself rather than, you know, there are Bandajet companies out there that I'm sure the company could have acquired. So can you... Tell me why it's decided to, you know, it's taken five years to, to get to this point. What was the, the, the motivation, I guess, to go, we're going to build this ourselves from the ground up, as opposed to to look at what else was out there on the market and, and integrate that? Um, I, I'm not sure I can give you all the details. Sure, <laughs> to, yeah. to be fair, um, I mean, we did consider acquisitions, to be honest. Um, Ultimately, we decided that the differentiation we felt was a lot in the binder chemistry and the binder um, process, and that we had already done, a, even prior to 2017, we had done a lot of work on binder chemistry that we felt was differentiated from anything else on the market. Um, and that was a strong motivator for why or why not to get into, do we vertically integrate or do we, mm. or do we go acquire, right? That's probably about as much as I'm comfortable yeah. talking about. I mean, yes. I the other thing we is, so we have acquired two companies, right? As you think of integration of two different businesses and their products and their support teams and all that kind of stuff. Another piece of the equation there was, can we even, do we even have the stomach to bring in yet a third company? Um, and we thought, hey, look, we, have got, we had a strong team at that point at the research center. Um, we had a strong team here, and so we said, 
let's go develop proof of concept, see if we can do it, mm -hmm. um, which was what that H1 Alpha was. It was, I think they, they designed, developed, built, and tested within 47 days, I think was what they did. <coughs> 50, 50, 50 something? 54 or something. Four days, whatever. Um, and so its whole premise was to be, you know, can we do it? And when we established, hey, on, on a quick sprint, I think we, I think we can do this, we figured we could probably also then control from the ground up what that product is versus try to take something that existed and rectify it, et cetera. So we thought at that time we could, uh, we could do better ourselves, I guess, mm -hmm. versus try to go buy something else and work with it, integrate it, and create more of an integration challenge. Um, the other thing to consider too is that at the time when we launched the additive, a lot of the, a lot of the initial uh, premise was around G aviation now G aerospace supply and Binderjet wasn't a technology that that business currently used. Okay. Um, so we probably had a bit more time as well to go say, hey, let's go develop something that can play in an external market that isn't necessarily our own today. Mm -hmm. I, it's a good, great point, Brian. And I think one of the things that we thought as we developed H1, and I'm sorry, I'm, you're testing my memory back, <laughs> back this far, um, was we didn't feel like there was a true industrial machine in the marketplace. And going through this beta program with, as we described, with some automotive mm. customers, the feedback, I mean, back in that early 2018 timeframe with companies like Cummins was, they, they were just flat laughing at us in terms of adoption of metal 3D printing in any serious production form. Right? Okay. And so, Part of it was we felt like we had to change the whole infrastructure of the print mm -hmm. process and no one on the market really had that. So what, what you see in the Series 3 today is really yeah. a culmination of both the binder technology but also that learning from our beta partners. Yeah, because I was going to mention maybe more of the concept laser technology than the RCAM one, but the, the powder bed fusion technology, I guess, where around 2016 was a bit more mature. And it's a much more saturated market than Bindajet, which got a handful of players. Right. But it, it's also maybe, I don't know, a few years behind in terms of maturity. Sure. So does that come into it where it's like, well, you know, I mean, Desktop Metal have only just launched theirs and um, HP have only just launched theirs. Right. So it's not like you're catching up really no. from, you, you know, whereas with certain concept laser, it's like you could, you could build from today, right. but there's already... EOS making money off multiple, of it and all of that. Yeah, multiple competitors. Out yeah, there. exactly. That's interesting. So, what, did, what was the opportunity? You mentioned scale before. What was the opportunity the company saw in buying the jet? And, and especially with the, the GE Aviation, GE Aerospace links, they hadn't, they weren't using the technology back then, but what was their impression of, of the potential of the technology around that time? GE Aerospace? Yeah. Um, I think the the impression was binder jet is not for aerospace, right? Right. Okay. Could be a casting replacement. Yes, could be a casting replacement, but in general, they're no pun intended. They were very laser focused, right? And um, binder jet was sort of like a, and and to to be frank, right? A lot of the existing binder jet machines on the market in twenty eighteen didn't develop material properties that were compatible with the jet engine. So, you know, as we've developed it, we've also kept in mind our aerospace team has a lot of castings on their engines, especially on the outside of the engine, mm -hmm. where this technology will ultimately play. Um, but 
bringing that material properties and repeatability to a level where it can also exist in, in an uh, aerospace environment. So I think the, you know, today the aerospace team is following BinderJet closely. Mm -hmm. They are, I would say, very consumed with a lot of their parts on the laser and EBM side that they're focused on developing, but they're going to be a fast follower from some of the work we've done here with our beta partners. Are they a bit more open to the idea at this point that it, it could work for, for some of the some of the parts I'm making? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, yeah. as I mentioned, especially on the outside of the engine. We, we buy a lot of simple castings today, and I'm mm. sure you've heard in the marketplace, right, simple castings are not so simple to get <laughs> these days. So there's a, there's a supply chain strain in general in the world on, on simple to medium castings where we think this fills a great... Yeah, great interesting though that, so with BinderJet, with the other two technologies that, that G Additive offers, that's come from a, there's a clear demand in, from our aerospace business as G as a whole, whereas this one seems to be a little more, added, the additive division kind of leading the way and almost saying we can see the potential, so, and obviously there's other markets you can go after, but there's a, there's a different dynamic going on where before it was aerospace leading the way and now it's additive. Um, and we talk about this a lot internally, just from a content point of view of how much do we gauge what the industry wants and how much do we use our own kind of know-how to go, this is the kind of content and the kind of areas you should be reading. It's, yeah. Sometimes it's you listen to the, the user and sometimes you, you back yourself and you go, you're going to need this. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because a lot of our team, Brian and I included, right, came from more of the user side of being a user of additive, mm. right? And so we, when we started BinderJet, it was more from the perspective of we know there are applications that will benefit from a technology that's competitive with casting on costs mm -hmm. and is much more automated in terms of touch time and, and, and again, back to cost. Um, if we can compete in automotive, in terms of scale and costs, no question we can that can apply to aerospace, assuming we can get the right repeatability and material properties. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's you're right; it's a little bit of a different. It's kind of coming in the back door a little bit <laughs> versus the the laser and EBM. We we obviously knew that there was tremendous opportunity in aviation to go um, scale that technology. This this was we feel a pull coming from automotive mm -hmm. that ultimately will benefit. Obviously, we saw on, on the other slide that the target is, I guess, for users to purchase multiple of these systems um, and, and have that um, kind of scaled use of the, of the technology. In terms of the development of that solution and, I guess, the supply chain that you need to actually deliver it, how much of how much work goes into that because it's it's okay like when you see the, the slide and it's you know like four rows of eight machines or eight rows of four machines um that it's another another thing entirely actually building the infra infrastructure to be able to to deliver that and I, I guess the the bigger the demand gets the bigger you guys have to build in terms of your your infrastructure so talk to me about that process and how you build up to that from a, a beta technology that's with a, a handful of users to obviously the target is these machines are out there at vast numbers. 
Yeah, I mean, so today here, so at this site is where the core of our uh, engineering team is for Binerjet at least, um, and then we'll be making, we'll be doing low rate production of the machines the back of the facility here, sort of validating the manufacturing process, make sure all the work instructions are everything are clear and easy, uh, make sure all our assembly drawing, all these types of things that go into scale production, make sure you're good, are buttoned well. And then we have, you know, we're strategizing around what's that scale production plan look like. Um, we're very likely to shift either, well, over a period of time into our Lichtenfels facility, which has a lot of extra square footage today, mm -hmm. to be building these machines at scale. Um, and then we're also, you know, here today we'll be building these machines from, you know, uh, from the bottoms up pretty much. We have certain subsystems that we insource, but we're going to be building these machines from the bottom up. And then as we gain more experience, we'll know, hey, maybe I can package these things for XYZ supplier to do so I have less touch time myself, et cetera. So, um, the, the vision is to, to scale out of this facility and into Lichtenfels most likely, and then um, you know various things beyond that if you think cost out otherwise. Mm -hmm. In terms of uh, shipments and, and that commencing um, beyond the, the beta users, obviously supply chain over the last few years has been really difficult. I know a lot of printer manufacturers are extending their, their lead time from a, you know, a delivery to an actual uh, an order to an actual delivery. Um, how has that been for, for GE? Are, are the shipments on track and have you taken any any measures to you know ensure that you've got all of the all of the parts you need to, to kind of roll the technology out um, on schedule? Yeah, I mean we've definitely seen long leads without a doubt. Um, we today I would say for our early machine deliveries um, Part, we've been somewhat of a benefactor of taking a little bit longer through our validation cycle. So we've been putting, we a lot of our long lead parts that we know aren't, aren't going to change, you know, certain, you know, chips and things like this that are really long, we've had on order for quite some time. Um, and so we're future planning a little bit as well. As those things are coming in for our early number of machines to understand, okay, these are the real lead times. We've got a full supply demand fulfillment type of process, which is regular rhythm across all our modalities. So, um, from a binder jet perspective, we're plugging into that. So we've got good rhythm and rigor, but also we have uh, benefit of scale across common suppliers in a lot of cases, across our other modalities too. So we have, um, especially for electrical components and things like that, we've got the ability to source as GE additive enterprise across modalities on critical components. So we're certainly not um, free and clear of all supply chain challenges. Everyone struggles with them, but I think we've got a, a decent handle on it today. Mm -hmm. Now, I think if, if, I, if we had an order for 100 machines come in tomorrow, all right, we'll have some challenges. It's <laughs> yeah. a good problem to have. Yeah, to have. 100%. Um, in terms of that, what's the um, early demand or the early interest been like? And, and what um, is, it, is it coming from the industry you expected it? To, to come from at this stage in terms of automotive or have there been other markets that have kind of expressed an interest and, and how are those conversations developing? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've, a lot of our business case, I would say, was predicated on automotive, but we're definitely seeing interest from other industries as well, um, especially like we have a lot of sort of pipeline customers right now in sort of the general industrial space, I would call it, uh, where they have complex castings or otherwise that they're having some troubles with from supply chain or they're trying to reduce cost or you know, the typical reasons why you go pursue additive. Um, 
we've got interest as well from medical, aerospace. I mean, we've got interest coming in. Now the challenge it varies based off of industry and application, how much validation you need and what's your timeline into production and all that. But um, yeah, I'd say we're getting more diverse pipeline than we originally intended mm -hmm. or projected, I guess I would say. Yeah, and I think um, d defense is another area that's yeah. shown a lot of interest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you think about anyone who needs castings is starting to get interested at some level. And that's a pretty, as you look at that, that's a pretty broad spectrum. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and like we talked about earlier, the, the fact that we've sort of, maybe we're overstating this a little bit, but the fact that we've designed this for the automotive market from a cost point and a touch time point really kind of, you almost buy into those other industries because there's a lower bar to entry, so to speak. Right. Certain industries have certain material standards that may cause you know you to do some additional work to get into that industry. Like if you're going to go into the marine industry, different mm -hmm. requirements than automotive, so there may be some time lag. But from a cost standpoint, really you almost buy yourself in from the very beginning, which is a nice place to be. One thing I wanted to ask was about um, the the AdWorks division and. Um, I guess the role it, it will play with, with Bandajet and how you um, kind of build the, the know-how of that, of that division. Obviously, it's, it's been there for years but before you were, you were doing work with Bandajet. So how do you build up that knowledge and that know-how of that team? And then what, what role, I guess, particularly in the early stages, as you roll out the technology, will, will they play in, in the Bandajet coming to market? Yeah, no, it's a great question because it plays well into our strategy. So... You know, if you look across a lot of our beta partners today, it's a, in close collaboration internal with AdWorks. Mm. Um, a lot of the people supporting those contracts are team people that are technically on our AdWorks teams. And so they're also getting smarter about the Bindertech technology along with our customers, to be frank. So um, we've got a fairly deep bunch of folks now that have been working on Bindertech for a number of years, of course. Um, and as you think about Bindertech versus Laser or even EVM, um, it takes... Whilst we've, we've done our best to try to remove as much iteration as possible, it does take more as you think about, uh, you know, depending on the complexity of your part, as you try to hone in, hey, this is, this is the manner in which I need to pre-store or pre-compensate it, this is how I may or may not need to have a setter through sintering to end up getting to my end of dimensional tolerances and all that kind of stuff. So, depending on the customer, we have some customers today who are current users in Bindergen or have been for a number of years where their their tact is more, hey, let me buy a machine um, and I feel pretty good that I know what, you know, give me the operator manual stuff, but we know how to binder jet parts, depowder them, we know the challenges there, we know how to center, yada, yada. Other customers who don't know that, um, it's having that AdWorks support element is extremely important. It's something that we always try to push because especially as you look at, and this is not a story that you're unfamiliar with, as some people try to adopt additive on their own, so to speak, they run into to challenges and then you end up in sort of this trough of disillusionment as we've called it at times where mm -hmm. people are like, I don't know that I'm ever gonna get there, whatever. And that's always been part of our premise with the AdWorks side of our business in the first place is how do I help you with the experience that we have as a user to not fall into that pit. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a key part of what we can bring to the table, I think. And in terms of the, 
Um, you talk about the, the trough of disillusionment there. What, what do you see as the challenges in terms of, it's one thing kind of getting to a point where you can commence shipments, but in terms of the adoption of the, of the technology, what are the, what are the hurdles that, that GE and its customers have to overcome to facilitate that and to, and I guess to, to make it easy for a company to adopt it and to, I guess, trust and believe in, in the technology and it's going to do what, what it wants, what they want it to do. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of customers in sort of more regulated industries and stuff, they want to see a lot of data, mm -hmm. you know, build-to-build, machine-to-machine type of stuff. Um, and so some of that is you just have to go do that work. I mean, you have to, and we've done that with a lot of customers today as you think about even work on the beta machines. Um, and we pr we're planning to do so as well in the Series 3s. Um, you know, it's just getting that data in some cases so people can feel confident, to your point. Um, you know, other things are, you know, some people will come in and say, hey, I have a part that I need this surface finish and this dimensional tolerance. And we'll say, hey, we have, this is the data we have for, say, a 100 micron layer parameter. Or they'll come and look at a part of a trade show and say, oh, I can't tolerate that surface finish. Um, some people, there's, a, there's an, a bit of an adoption barrier where they think, I, Binerjet can only achieve here mm -hmm. um, and I can't get any better than that but we have customers spreading down like at 50 micron layers which helps your surface finish but you know if you're automotive company trying to displace castings a 50 micron layer also means you're printing half as fast as if you're printing at 100 micron layers so your your cost model there is worse but for certain industries that's totally palatable mm -hmm. um, so helping to inform people that hey there's a lot of different process variables you can play with here to improve and get your part to where you need it to be based off the application that you have. Mm -hmm. um, so the adoption barriers or variables are, we're finding it is, are vastly different depending on both the level of pre-existing knowledge of the customer, of Binerjet, and the requirements of the end application people are trying to print. Mm -hmm. And so when you, <clears throat> when the, when it kind of gets out there on the market, when, when shipments commence, um, you know, G Additive will have a pretty settled lineup of EBM, um, DMLM, and uh, Binderjet technologies there for um, as as an offering to to your user base. What what comes next for the for the company? And and I guess in terms of your role, I imagine a lot of it has been getting it to this point to launch the machine. What what then is is what then will take up your time um, into the day to day workings? Yeah, I mean, so we're, we're heads down right now trying to make sure that we can get through validation, but then also get, make sure our supply chain gets set up, right? Questions mm -hmm. you've already asked around. Um, from there, it's, it's validating other materials, to be frank. Um, so right now, most of the material work we're doing is trying to, is and will be transferring what's been done on the beta machines through to the Series 3. Mm -hmm. Now, those are all alloys that are non-reactive alloys because the Series 2 beta machine is not inert. So it's not safe to try to put aluminum in that machine. But as we scale forward, all right, how do I, how do I get into some of these spaces where it's no secret to anybody, people want aluminum, pure copper, whatever it might be. Um, and so I think for us, it's gonna be, how do I scale into that? Um, how do I go validate some of those things for our customers? And we're working some thought processes there about how we can get a head start. Mm -hmm. um, so that'll probably be next. Uh, at least from a Binerjet perspective. Yep. Um, there's a lot there too, as you think about from a, from a product management perspective, which is the seat I'm in. It's not just about bringing that new technology to the market. It's 
how do I make sure it's stable? What's my service network look like? How's that going? What's my spare part fulfillment strategy? How's that going? To the earlier discussions, supply chain ramp up. Um, how do I eventually transfer that to like the fells? So it's a different set of problems or a different set of challenges, but there's an ever, ever, ever existing list of new challenges. <laughs>